Hello and welcome to the show. Long-time listeners might have heard our two episodes with Ian McGilchrist, a psychiatrist and neuroscientist whose magnificent book, The Master and His Emissary, is probably the most original and profound work of philosophy written in the last 20 years. It's an account of how the two hemispheres of our brain work together to produce our experience of the world, and what this means for human culture. Ian recently released a sequel called The Matter With Things, and we invited John Cleese to interview him about it. Now, I calculated that if we sort of generally go through the book, we have three seconds for every page. (laughs) Very good. So, um, basically, I want to ask you one question. Are you insane? (laughs) <laughs> I thought you were going to ask me to summarise Proust. <laughs> but seriously, this is an extraordinary... I mean, ten years, Yes. 1,500 pages, why? Well, quite. I often ask myself, yes, well, there is a serious answer, I think. I'm very concerned as... Uh, sorry to lower the tone, so, but I'm very concerned, as I imagine a lot of people here are, about the way the world is going, and before I go, I wanted to say something I thought was relevant about it from my experience of people and, and their brains. I think the things that, you know, I would point to, that they're pretty obvious. Obviously, the top of the list has to be the destruction of our, our home, of the planet, but also of various strange things like destroying other cultures destroying our own civilization, turning ourselves into machines. Um, I'm very alarmed at the speed with which mechanistic thinking and machine-like thinking is taking over uh, in everyday life, not necessarily in you know, strange areas of academe or something, but actually the business of leading a life now depends on your adopting a rather machine-like way of being. And we're encouraged, all of us, to think of ourselves as slightly faulty machines, you know, because we've got emotions and bodies and things like that, you know, which computers are not handicapped by. All of that, and the lust for power and control, which is extremely worrying and accelerating a pace, and the means whereby to acquire it by people who have little wisdom in how to use it, So this is the sort of setting, and um, for those of you who've read The Master and His Emissary, you'll know that that um, rings bells for anyone who knows about the evolution of brain systems, effectively the main two systems being those that are physically and um, philosophically divided, the, the right and left hemispheres, because one of them is designed to enable us to control and manipulate, but not really to understand. That's the left hemisphere. And the right hemisphere is the one that helps us to understand everything, however subtle and complex in context. And I just felt that we were running so far towards what I predicted in The Master and His Emissary, a culture which was dependent almost entirely on ways of thinking typical of the left hemisphere. That was was part of it. I was thinking that um, the obsession with robots at the moment... Yes. It seems to come partly because people have forgotten that we have functions other than robotic ones. 
Yes, I mean, it's one of those self-fulfilling things. The more you define what is valuable as what a machine can do, the less you value the humanity. I've written a book which aims to redress this terrible, terrible, destructive, lemming-like rush towards our destruction through embracing a view that we and the cosmos are nothing but a heap of rubbish. Um, it, it's fur- I'm a scientist, so I'm further worried by the way in which pop science and sort of popular philosophical discourse um, rushes to embrace a kind of very simplistic model, which is that of reductionist materialism, that there really only is matter, and in order to understand it, you take it apart and find what the bits are. You take it all apart and you find a handful of dust. You say, well, it doesn't mean anything. Well, yes, but it's slightly like taking a wonderful piece of music and listing all the notes in a notebook in order, alphabetically. And then you say, well, we've got all the notes here, but I'm damned if I can see that it means anything at all. Um, so you know, that's also a concern, and that, that is not compelled on us. That view, that intellectually simplistic morally damaging and spiritually bankrupt way of looking at the world is not entailed on us by anything in science. It's not entailed on us by reason. It's entailed on us by a very left hemisphere, very simple, very procedural vision of what science is and what reason is. It's almost as though most scientists, especially biologists and psychologists, are not aware that physics changed completely in 1920. Absolutely. And am I not right? Did you not start out reading physics at Cambridge? I, I, no, I, I went to Cambridge. I, I got in that. on physics. Oh, you got in on and physics. And then I discovered that some of the students coming to Cambridge to do physics were actually interested in it. <laughs> it occurred to me this gave them an unfair advantage. <laughs> so I said, what can I do? And they said, very little because you don't have the A-levels. You can, you can do law. And I said, all right, I'll all do right. law. Yeah, and I did that for three years and escaped immediately afterwards. <laughs> When you discovered that actually you could make people love. Yes, that's right, which was the first time I'd ever discovered I had any creative ability at all, which fascinates me that I've written this little book about creativity and the people least interested in it are educationalists. Ah, yes. yes. I wrote to Bath where I have a connection with the university and I offered them twice to do talks to the, to the students, you know, um, remote talks, yes. and never heard back from them on either offer. Yeah. And that's... What is that about? But uh, I think you're too woke, probably, John. Hmm? I think you're probably too woke for them. <laughs> um, but, but no, I mean, going back to physics, I mean, physics is so important. And it's, there's a strange paradox that those scientists who study the inanimate world long ago, uh, over 100 years ago, abandoned this mid-19th century mechanistic model, um, have discovered that the universe is very complex and subtle, that matter is at least as complex as consciousness, and they're probably, almost certainly, interdependent elements. And Max Planck said that uh, mind came first. He wasn't the only one. 
No, but, but Planck stated, yes, that consciousness is primary. And there are a lot of physicists who certainly would hold that... Uh, I mean, not a physicist, of course, but um, I am interested in physics, and um, I have some kind friends who are physicists who sort of vet my maunderings in this direction. But the... the yes, I mean, phys physicists have, have seen that consciousness is essential to existence, and yet biologists who deal with the animate universe have decided yeah. that it's much simpler than that, and that consciousness probably doesn't exist, or if it does, it's just something that's secreted by a brain, rather like urine from a kidney. I don't know how, but... Uh, <laughs> Actually, to, uh, here, here's a spoiler alert. Nobody knows how that could possibly happen. Fascinating, because the resistance of mainstream scientists to what they discovered in, nine, in the 1920s, you know, quantum physics, the resistance is almost incomprehensible yeah. to me. What, we, yeah. what do you feel about it? Well, of course, there's absolutely no resistance in the world of science outside of the biology, outside of the life sciences. And I'm not the only person in that area who said, you know, I wish that our colleagues in biology would catch up with physics. But I think there is a, there's a huge investment in, in, in the bio... I, mean, I suppose that the number, the amount of money, the amount of grants, the amount of... Um, positions in university that in one way or another come under one of the headings of biology, medicine, psychology, physiology. Well, doctors in particular, aren't they? They have a very mechanistic view of the body. Yes, I mean, it's sad, really. I mean, sometimes you, you say, you know, it's not entirely obvious that the body is a machine. And they look at you in a slightly hurt way, like, you know, sort of... Oh, how, how could you say that? I mean, that's genuinely baffled. Yes. And I think that... But that's the way they're taught, isn't it? Well, yes. I mean, there's so much to cram into a medical education, as I discovered. I started with the handicap of being 10 years older than most people when I studied medicine. Um, but even then, there was a hell of a lot to cram into your six years or whatever. But I, I, I would favour the American system. You can't read medicine as a first degree... And I would add to Ryder that that first degree, which is the case in, in America, it's usually people who've done biology or something, that you ought to do something in the humanities. You, before you become a doctor, if you're actually going to get lay your hands on people, you should know something about human beings <laughs> and, and, and not just about machines. Um, so, so, yes, uh, anyway... But I'm fascinated by the, <clears throat> the resistance to uh, information. I know that Rupert Sheldrake went along to the BBC to discuss something with Richard Dawkins, and at some point he said to Dawkins, who'd said there was no evidence for what uh, uh, Rupert was saying, he, he said, did you read any of the stuff that I uh, sent you to read before the program and Dawkins said no, no I, I didn't bother to because I knew it was nonsense yes, yes. you know it's a bit like the, uh, the Galileo isn't it and the ecclesiastics and he's saying look through my beautiful new telescope at the craters on the moon and they're saying we don't need to look because we know that they're not there um, it's an extraordinary attitude, it, what's it, it about? it is extraordinary 
Um, it's well, left brain, isn't it? It's hanging on. It, it, it's hanging on to, to the need for certainty, for the need to believe that you can explain everything. Yeah. Um, by the way, that's a completely irrational... I mean, it's a disprovable point that we can understand everything, but it's also an irrational assumption. Why would, if you believe in evolution, which I certainly do, we are presumably somewhere maybe quite low down on the rungs of evolution. Why would our brains have evolved by 2021 to the point where we could understand everything in the cosmos? Yeah. And actually, my, since I'm very interested in the history of philosophy and the history of ideas, my suggestion is that actually we now understand much less than we used yes. to. We know a lot more information, but our understanding has not progressed peri passu with the amount of information. In fact, it's gone into the reverse. So, so, but I think that you know, there's a lot of reasons. As I say, it's a very powerful lobby. There's no incentive once you're entrained in it to rock the boat, to say things that will make your colleagues think you're unsound. Um, fortunately, in physics, everybody agrees that nobody understands quantum mechanics and that if you do, you're an imposter. So, <laughs> so they don't have the same hang-up about the idea that we don't really understand everything. We understand lots of things up to a point. But the quest for certainty... You see, <clears throat> that seems to be about control, which is left hemisphere. And I, I sometimes feel that people want to be in control primarily if they feel anxiety. I think you're right. You know, if in creativity, if people are anxious for some reason, if they, even if there's just time pressure, they resort to stereotypical thinking. They can't then play and get into something more creative. It's so true. And in the writing of the book, I looked at the history of many scientists and how they made their discoveries, and many mathematicians and how they arrived at their now accepted conclusions. And there's research as well. I mean, what that shows, sorry, before I say what the research shows, um, what was clear from that is that although they did a lot of procedural thinking of a very routine kind at certain times in their life, that was not how they made these discoveries at all. They were made by intuitive insight, seeing connections between often shapes and forms that um, nobody had thought of as related before. So the myth that science is a matter of sort of making no assumptions at all, testing every possible hypothesis to exhaustion, well, no idiot did that. I mean, there wouldn't be time in the history of the universe to do it. People make what look like good intuitions about what might be going on here, and then they test it in certain ways. But often their insights are nothing to do with that. They rely on imagination. Science is a hugely imaginative enterprise, which doesn't mean it's made up, you know? Uh, um, imagination is the way in which we get insight into things that we thought we knew. And it's not necessarily verbal. Absolutely. Um, in fact, it's rarely verbal. Einstein said he, that he felt that um, uh, muscular sensation was actually part exactly. of his system of thought, and that while he was thinking, he would be unable to explain to anyone what he was thinking in words. Oh, absolutely. And he used to play the keyboard or the violin or whatever, and come to it, and then his daughter described, say, now I've got it, and here we go. Mm. And, Famously, he, he couldn't explain in words what he had discovered for, for months after he'd made the discovery. But he's not alone. 
going back to, in fact, the Greek world, but certainly in our own times, there were 18th century mathematicians like Euler who said, you know, I, I, I've, I've got my conclusions, but how I'm to get there, I haven't yet discovered. Uh, but I mean, he was right, his conclusions were co- correct. Yeah. So I'm not suggesting that we jump to conclusions. In fact, interestingly, the left hemisphere is the one that does a lot of quick and dirty jumping to conclusions. Does it? And it's the right hemisphere that says, but hang on, it may be more complex than that. In fact, it's always seeing that things are more complex and therefore that there need to be shades of meaning and that things need to be nuanced and so on. Which is why I write long books, because <laughs> in the end people ask you to summarize them, you know, like prose. Um, but, <laughs> but, but in doing so, you do violence to the fact that there are what's drawn together are many shades of things that qualify one another. Yeah. And that most of what matters to us in life is implicit, not explicit in language. Hello, it's Vass here. One of our all-time favourite guests at How To Academy is back. Yuval Noah Harari's next book tells the story of how information networks have made and unmade our world. Nexus, a brief history of information networks from the Stone Age to AI, is out in September and available to pre-order now. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It fascinated me that Bernard Berenson, who I think was the great Renaissance uh, critic, um, that he could always tell uh, when something was a fake yes. because he'd feel ill. Yes. In his well, you know, it wasn't something up here, the brush strokes aren't right. You could just look at it and yes. start feeling slightly sick. That's it. So yeah. that it, what comes up from intuition is not in a neatly typed out form of words. Yes, and we could say something a bit about intuition, I suppose. Because it's very important, actually. It's received a, a, a rather a bad rap in recent years uh, due to the ingenious machinations of various um, psychologists who, who love finding what I call intuitive illusions, which are equivalent to optical illusions. You know, they, they, you look at these and you can't be right, but actually it can be proven it is. But uh, as I've often said, I don't know that after seeing a really good optical illusion Anybody said, right, that does it after this. I'm never going to trust my eyes again. (laughs) You've got to trust your eyes if you're going to live. And the encouragement not to use intuition is one of the most pernicious aspects of modern culture. Of course it can be mistaken, but so can the simplistic following of algorithmic procedures that a computer would find logical. Reason is the blending of the ability to think in logical terms with experience and what is drawn from experience, which is all the richness that comes from being a human being, not a machine. And I think that the reason they don't trust intuition is that a lot of it is an unconscious process. A hundred percent. I'm thinking, you know, there was a very interesting experiment where they showed a group of people, Chinese ideograms, 
And then next week they said, we're going to show you some new ones and some old ones. Tell us the ones you saw last week. Hopeless. Then they repeated the experiment. But the second week they said, when you look at the shapes, you'll find that some please you more than others. Um, just tell us which ones please you. And the ones that pleased them were the ones they'd seen the week before. Yeah. So the knowledge was there yeah. at an unconscious level, but that's mistrusted by the left hemisphere because it's not in control. No, not only not in control, but it's the one that has this spotlight of attention. The fundamental yeah. difference, as you remember, is, goes back to the ways in which the two hemispheres attend to the world for evolutionary reasons. One of them is intent on getting and grabbing a detail in order to stay alive. Uh, but the other is intent on seeing the whole of the rest of the picture, because if you didn't, you'd be very vulnerable. Um, you wouldn't understand anything else going on in the world. So we have to have these two types of attention. But the left hemisphere spotlight means that it only sees... It's, it's literally something like three out of 360 degrees of the attentional arc. So imagine a stage on which just a tiny spotlight, but everything else yeah. that was going on in that world, all the other actors, all the rest of the scenery, wasn't visible. And as far as the left hemisphere is concerned, one of the very early chapters, I, I, I showed this astonishing evidence from individuals who had damage to the right hemisphere, that something that doesn't exist in their attentional field doesn't exist. That's, that's Not right. only doesn't exist no. now, by the way, but never existed before and can't be imagined to exist in the future. Oh. So an amazing early German uh, or possibly Austrian neurologist, Singler, describes um, a number of patients who'd had right hemisphere strokes. And what he points out is something very subtle. It's known that they deny the left half of their body and the left half of space and all kinds of things are very strange. You know, that arm, not mine if it's paralyzed, and anyway, it's perfectly okay as far as I'm concerned. I mean, denial and the yeah. non-existence. But the, when they were questioned about the left side, they just froze and, and, and wouldn't answer any questions. And then... He noticed that if it was suggested to them that they once had an arm on that side that moved and so on, they totally blanked that and denied it. And they couldn't project that they could ever have one again. So this is really very remarkable. What it means is that as far as the left hemisphere is concerned, but not as far as the right hemisphere is concerned, it has a broad attention. What is not attended to simply doesn't exist, never existed. Yeah, yeah. And that's philosophically fascinating. Well, it's very true of science, isn't it? Because um, you remember that story about the man who's going down the street and he sees a guy uh, looking, looking around. He says, can I help? He says, yes, I, I uh, dropped my key. Yeah. And <clears throat> he looks for a time with the guy and he says, well, um, you sure you dropped it here? And the guy said, no, no, I dropped it down the alley over there. And he said, well, why are we looking here? He says, the light's better. <laughs> and that seems to me to sum up a lot of science. It's behaviorism, isn't it? You say, what's out here in the light? <laughs> you know, and that will dominate psychology for 70 years. It's insanity. Well, behaviorism is one of the most bizarre um, <laughs> delusions that could ever have struck humanity, as, as Galen Strawson, a prominent... American, um, sorry, English, uh, Anglo-American um, analytic philosopher of the mainstream says, you know, 
one of the weirdest things that could ever happen, to deny the inwardness of experience. Yeah. Because, of course, you can only do that using the inwardness of your experience. So, yes, but what I wanted to say is that we know that the vast majority, and I mean less than half a percent, of what the brain is doing, taking in, and knowing about mm. is present to consciousness. Mm. And that we do a lot of very sophisticated things, not only mostly why we're not conscious of them, but we do them better when we're not conscious of them, which mm. I think was what you were driving at when you well, were... Well, like doing a, uh, doing a shoelaces up, if you think about oh, it, you, it becomes much more difficult. <laughs> lost, yes. yeah. but, but, you know, uh, there's a, a prominent German jurist, uh, the head of a Max Planck Institute, uh, who, who says that institutions should encourage their employees, wherever possible, to make decisions intuitively. Um, not just because we know very well that creative decisions are only ever, good creative yeah. decisions are only made intuitively. Um, which doesn't mean you don't think at all, that's not my point. You do thinking, you do a lot of work, you gather evidence, but you allow your intuitions to guide you to the conclusion, you don't force it. And, and the, the interesting thing there is, he points out that when you speak, and when you think explicitly out loud, you can only be thinking of one thing at the time, yeah, yeah. Where, which is so obvious, frankly, that you collapse all that you know to this one thing that you're saying right now, Whereas in your intuitive, unconscious mind, you are bringing together 20, 30, 1,000 strands from memory, from experience, about how these things tend to go and what patterns you... And we're told now you mustn't trust that. Um, and I think part of the worry is that we will uh, jump to conclusions, actually in the way that the left hemisphere does. You know, we'll make quick and dirty judgments. But actually, it turns out we're not that stupid. But tell me, about, why does the left hemisphere jump to conclusions? I don't know. Well, it's part of its desire for fixity, certainty, and uh -huh. getting something. I mean, perhaps it would help uh -huh. for... I mean, not everybody here will have read The Master and His Emissary, so they may still be at the stage of thinking that all this right-left stuff is that nonsense that was talked about in pop psychology until I wrote The Master and His Emissary. Um, <laughs> But the, the stuff that followed the Roger Sperry um, Nobel Prize, well, it got simplified for a long time. Well, Sperry was a very, very great man and a great philosopher as well. Yeah. As a, and interestingly, like me, came to science from the humanities. Oh. But he got his Nobel Prize for his work on hemisphere difference. That's absolutely right. But um, the pop culture vulgarized it and got it wrong. And also, in the early stages of any scientific enterprise, people you know, make generalizations that seem at that point in knowledge to be right, and then part of the whole point of science is that it progresses, so you let go of those and you find better ones. What you don't go is, oh, well, all that stuff they said, it's not right, so there can't be any differences at all. Yeah. Why would you ever think that? There are obvious differences. I mean, why is the brain structured like that? Why do people who have damage to one hemisphere rather than the other have predictably quite different experiences of the world? Of course there are differences. It's just working out what they are, and that's hard work. Nobody wanted to do it. I was muggins. I did the hard work. And, you know, what one sees, just very briefly, if I can do something that is really horrible, which is to try and summarize something very subtle in very short, a few words, 
If you focus very narrowly on things with the intent of grabbing them, you prize certainty, you prize fixity, stasis, because it makes it easier to grab. You see things as disparate, fragmented, atomistic. You see things as out of context, uh, as disembodied. You tend to abstract them and think of them as instances of a category. You tend to see them as two-dimensional. They're in a kind of mental space, not in the embodied space. Um, You see them as if functionally inanimate. And if you see them with the left hemisphere, that's the picture of the world. It's exactly the picture that has dominated popular science and popular um, philosophy in the public arena for a couple of hundred years. An atomistic, mechanistic universe that means nothing is going nowhere and doing nothing and only moves when, as Newton suggested, it's all static until something comes from outside and gives it a push. We now know that nothing at all is static. Everything is moving. Every single particle in the entire universe is always moving. So this is the start on another vision, that of the right hemisphere, in which nothing is ever fully certain, as we now know, not not just because we don't know enough, but because it's intrinsically uncertain, that everything is fundamentally connected ultimately to everything else, that it is flowing and changing all the time, never fixed and graspable like that, that it is always changed by being part of a context, that it is embodied, that it is something that is often implicit in the sense of can only be understood unconsciously, not just with the spotlight of consciousness, and is animate. So you've got a completely different kind of a world. And one way of looking at it is the right hemisphere sees the world as it presences, as it is present to us, as it becomes something we are aware of, whereas the left hemisphere sees its own diagram, schema, map, representation. Mm. And that representation is Well, I like the way you, you, I think you sort of hyphenate representation. Exactly. You take reality and then you re presented in a form that's acceptable to the left hemisphere. And what it suggests is that it's present again when it no longer is present. I mean, it's a kind of oxymoron representation. But really, it's the best the left hemisphere can do. It has an abstract idea of something, and it puts it in place of the thing. And I don't know what you think, but nowadays when I listen to a lot of public discourse, I think, what has happened to people's trust in experience? What's happened to that intelligent grasp of what's going on around them with human understanding, with emotional and social intelligence as well as cognitive intelligence, all of which are more dependent on the right hemisphere than Mm. on the left, as Mm. I demonstrated Mm. in the book. But what's happened to that? We seem to be thinking only in terms of schemas, theories about what's there, rather than saying, well, let's just have a look. Do you think it's because the world is a very anxious place at the moment, and that anxiety pushes us into stereotypes, which I know creatively, but pushes us also into the left hemisphere. More anxious we are, the more we look for certainty. You know, if you want certainty, then you take a revelatory uh, approach to religion, because then you've got something which is immutable. It's settled for all time, you know, which does not produce very good religion, I think. Well, the great enemy of religion and of science is dogma. And dogma is rigid thinking and saying, we know it's right because it says so in this book. That's not actually how science works. It's not how religion works. And then they're not incompatible. They're not in any way 
incompatible with one another at all. They're both rather different. They take different attitudes, but they're both should be at their best, honest, uncertain attempts to get closer to what really is. Yeah. And answering the question what really is, is what my book, No Matter With Things, to go back to your first question, why did I write the book? It's an attempt to say, I think we can get somewhere nearer this, and certainly we can get away from this very limited distraction. So tell us now, assuming that most of the people here have a fairly good grasp of the hemisphere idea, tell me how you develop that in these new uh, 1,500 pages. <laughs> how do you structure that? Yes. Well, extremely briefly, um, what I think I need to do is to demonstrate, first of all, that if we're talking about what is real, and the two hemispheres produce two different pictures of reality, we have to be able to judge between them. So part one of the book is showing just how different the grasp or the ability to understand of the two hemispheres is to the basic stuff of experience. What do I mean by the basic stuff? I mean, how do we gather anything about the world before we start reasoning about it or doing science on it? We do so by our attention. We do it by perception. We do it by the judgments that we already form on perception because we never just perceive something but we already think it is a something. And those processes are all interrelated. And then we, we bring to bear our emotional and social intelligence, our cognitive intelligence and our creativity on understanding what is going on here. And what I demonstrate in every case looking at literature about individuals, but also broad tests and studies in normal, uh, in normal individuals as well as in those who've had brain damage, that effectively all of these things, attention, perception, judgment, intelligence of every kind and creativity are better served, not only served, that's not my point, but better served, and in some cases very largely only served by the right hemisphere. Now what, why is that important? You might say, well I don't really care which hemisphere. I mean, that is in the end irrelevant. What important is the actual intelligence or the creativity? But what I think it contributes is something really kind of significant in the history of philosophy. Because in the past, all we could do when we look back across the history of philosophy is say, at this time people thought this, at another time they thought that. Mm. Or even at the same time, often in Greece, one group of philosophers thought this, one thought that. And you have to go, well, take your pick. I believe we can do better than take your pick because we can see the stamp, the hallmark of what the left hemisphere would make of this situation. Mm -hmm. And we know now, incontrovertibly, that the left hemisphere is just less veridical. It's not always mistaken. It's not that it doesn't contribute something. We do much better when we have both hemispheres working. I don't wish for a mass left hemisphere stroke for the population. <laughs> On the whole, I believe the brain is structured this way for a reason. But the left hemisphere must be in service to the right. Mm. In other words, it should be informing the right in the way that a computer informs a human being but doesn't mm. actually make the decisions about the world because only somebody who lives in the world can do that. Mm. But we are now privileging, both through our addiction to machines and through this machine-like way of thinking, we're privileging this extremely impoverished, unintelligent vision over the imaginative, intelligent, insightful one. And if we're going to survive, number one, we'll need to change. Mm. 
And number two, even if we could survive by a series of flukes and brilliant pieces of technology, it wouldn't do us any good because we'd still be these limited, narcissistic, unhappy, anxious, miserable specimens you were describing because we believe in this vision of the world and of what humanity is and of how we relate to one another and what we should be doing here in this world. I'll give you a wonderful example of the left hemisphere when they're talking about consciousness. Oh, <laughs> right. Well, you know, everybody knows one thing for sure right now, which is that they're sort of sitting here um, yes. listening or not listening to us. Everybody knows that, that, that that's their experience. And yet uh, the evolutionary biologists will say, oh, no, no, consciousness is simply a byproduct of chemical reaction. Yeah. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, they say. It's an epiphenomenon. I mean, that is insanity. Well, if you think of Descartes, at least Descartes said, you know, I'm, I'm here. I think, therefore, I'm here. Yes. I mean, there are, obviously, this is a complex area, and there are many arguments to be gone through. For the information of the audience, I go through them. So there is a chapter, uh, 25, on matter and consciousness, which is really a short book, effectively, um, in which I do talk about all these possibilities. And uh, the weirdest, by a very long way, is that you know, there are people who are well thought of and hold down chairs in universities in the Western world who claim that consciousness doesn't exist. Now, that, <laughs> really, that really is a corker. Because, of course, it takes consciousness to say it, it takes consciousness to hear it, it takes consciousness to have observed what the person thinks they've observed, namely that consciousness doesn't exist, but, and so on and so forth. It's but the basic thinking starter. is we, we, huh? don't, we don't have a theory for this, so it doesn't exist. That's right, yes. Mm -hmm. And also, we can only really believe to exist things that we can measure. Yes. You know, if it doesn't measure and we can't see it from the outside, doesn't exist. However, we start from the inside. Our outside, our objective measurements are made within consciousness. They're not made somewhere outside of our consciousness uh, or outside of our ability to be conscious. So where, where do we think this stuff is happening? You know, um, how, can it, how can it be that, the, that, we, that matter, which is defined by such people as non-conscious, gives rise to the conscious. Nobody has a clue, because it didn't happen. So even rather hard-nosed um, mainstream scientists like Colin Blakemore, very highly regarded neuroscientist, in his handbook, Oxford Handbook to Consciousness, says that very probably, as, as Ramachandran, a very much by me and many people admired neuroscientist, that uh, almost certainly consciousness must be seen as a building block of the universe, which is what physicists have been saying for a hundred years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I hold that uh, consciousness is pervasive um, and that it may change its nature and its manifestations. Um, indeed, I hold that matter is a phase of consciousness. Go on about that, because I read that <laughs> and I don't understand it. Well, what I mean by phase is not a temporal phase, not that it comes later or before, but what chemists mean when they talk about phases of a liquid when it becomes solid, like, you know, water has phases when it's liquid and when it's solid. And it looks very different, you know, when it's liquid, it's, it's, it's translucent, it's, you can't grasp it, it's moving, it's, 
you know, uh, all the rest. And when it's, when it's uh, ice, it's opaque, it's stuck where it is unless it gets pushed, and it's uh, hard enough to split your head open. It's a very different matter. And what I say about matter is it's an element in consciousness that provides resistance. Now, why that should be important, we don't have time to go into. But one of my central theses in this new book is that resistance is absolutely essential to creativity. That there could not be a cosmos, that nothing could exist, um, what physicists describe couldn't exist, what we psychologists and psychiatrists and philosophers think about couldn't exist without a degree of resistance. And matter is that element of resistance within consciousness, which is one of them. One of the things I'm thinking about a lot, because I'm making a program for Channel 4 about cancel culture oh, yes. and wokery and all that, is how it seems to me that people who are very woke uh, don't understand the importance of context when they're dealing with the meaning of words. Absolutely. Right? Do you want to? <laughs> well, well, you've said... <laughs> Thanks for passing the ball. Um, well, no, 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 it's all right. No, but I, what, I mean, you said earlier, are we all very anxious and is that why we fled into this left hemisphere mode? I would say that it's not this, therefore that, but those two mutually reinforce one another. Yes, yes, And that yes. really everything that we see around us is a manifestation of left hemisphere dominance. It is very anxious unless it can control everything. And then since nobody and no culture and nothing can control everything, it, its mode of being is highly anxious. Yeah. Which is why when people have right hemisphere damage and are running on the left hemisphere, they become paranoid. Because paranoia is, it's not under my control. Somebody else is manipulating it, me, things. And I can't intervene in that. So that is that world. And people who inhabit it, as you rightly say, want certainty. They want black and white, yes. and they want categories, and they want rigidity, all the left hemisphere things. And they don't think flexibly. They don't think there are two sides to every single question, that there is good where there is bad, and there is bad where there is good, that there is subtlety in meaning that can only be understood, as you say, by seeing the whole thing in context, and that, you know, there's many things that can be stated only implicitly, and once you make them explicit, you change their meaning. So it's incredibly unfortunate that you can take a statement by, as it were, yourself, and whiz it round the world out of context, yeah. and make people believe that you're somebody other than you are. Yeah. Well, the great problem with, uh, for example, Faulty Towers, was that when we put some words into the major's mouth, which was supposed to be funny because the major was talking nonsense. The literal-minded people um, think, oh, the major is saying that and that is what everyone thinks. You see, it was like Alf Garnet. Yes. And there was a problem with Alf Garnet because he was saying these rather ridiculous right-wing things and there were people sitting at home saying, at last these things are being said. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So if you don't look at the context, it is very hard to explain to woke people that a word can be used affectionately or very meanly. And very often you can say, I mean, you and I know one another that when I meet you, I can say, how are you, you old kiss or something? You know, and, 
and it, it's friendly, and it's friendly. Not and only said, it's friendly, it's I, even a bonding mechanism. Yes, I said, oh yes, uh, John, how are you doing? Um, no. So, uh, uh, two things about hemispheres. One is that the left hemisphere doesn't understand non-literal meaning. Wow. So it tends to take everything very, very literally. It doesn't understand sense of humour. Now, as far as I'm concerned, I want to say this very clearly in the presence of one of the greatest humorists of all time. What do you mean, one of them? Uh, well, I know, I know, I, I know. You're completely right. Um, and and I, I received a review of my book, which said, um, it's quite simple, this is one of the most important books ever written. And I thought, what do you mean, one, one of them? Of them. <laughs> No, no, but I mean, as far as I'm concerned, comedians um, and humorists are really up there with the poets, and they're doing something very similar to poets. They're using language to subvert language. The, the straitjacket of language is taken and made rich and open and imaginative, and this is what you do. And in my life, you know, I'm as grateful to people like you for making me laugh over, you know, however many decades, as to the great poets. But the other thing about um, you know, this, this literal-minded thing is that it, it is a matter of it must mean this out of context. And I sometimes make the point that context can completely reverse meaning. Well, um, as with irony. Well, irony is, is usually doing that. Exactly but, but the can, opposite. It, but, it, but it can also literally reverse meaning outside of irony. For example, in America, there are four sizes of cereal packets. You must know this. You live in America a lot of the time. I didn't know about cereal packets. You probably didn't have to buy your own cereal. But if you do ever venture into a supermarket, you'd have to buy your own cereal. You'll find that there are, there's four sizes of packets offered to you. There's jumbo, which means very big. Yes. And then then, then there's um, economy, which means uh, big. Then, then there's family, which means medium. And then finally there's large, which means small. And effectively the context completely changes the meaning of a word. Yes. You know, another if one. That I, get, well, sorry. In, in Starbucks, the grande is the medium size. Sorry, what's that? The grande. If you order a grande, you get the medium-sized one. <laughs> anyway. Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson, is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists and thinkers, including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas, and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook, and audio. Should we? Do you think we've reached? The I point think we, where should we should ask some questions. Ask some we? questions. Yes. If you just we might, could go on rather too long, I'm afraid. If people want to ask a question, just wave a hand, and I'll point. There's one there. Can we get a microphone to this gentleman? Come along. Come along. For <laughs> While we're getting a micro in there, I'll tell a joke. Why do the French have so many civil wars? The answer is so that they can win one now and again. <laughs> can we get a microphone to this gentleman? I, uh... All right, try shouting and I'll repeat yeah. it. Hi there. Um, oh. My question is about um, the relation between the parts and the whole, maybe for both of you. I found that when I'm learning a new skill or technique, it's essential to learn all the parts. 
you know, individually. But it also feels a bit deflating sometimes. You think, oh, is that all it is? You've kind of seen behind the screen, as it were. And I wonder about your thoughts on getting back a sense of the whole, a sense of the, the magic of the thing, after you've seen the parts. Thank you. It's a good question. Um, there are so many things that could be said about that, but one is that you can't tell what the part is till you know what kind of a whole it can go to make up. For example, the piece of music that I ridiculously suggested you just listed all the notes. When you take music apart, all you find is notes. But a note on its own doesn't seem to mean anything. But potentially, it can be part of something life-changing. So that tells you something about a musical note that you need to take into account, as well as an analysis of the whole into parts. You need to put the parts into a context to see what kind of holes they're going to make. So it should always be a reverberative process, which is another thing I constantly emphasize. There are no one-way processes in either physics or psychology. Everything is something in which something affects something else and affects it back again. So what I would say very briefly, because I don't want to hog the stage here and there's just so much to say, is that I think you should understand something intuitively first and analyze it later as an intermediary stage on the process. You can take a piece of music apart when you practice it, you need to. But when you go back and perform the piece that you were intuitively attracted to at the outset, you need to forget all that um, minute mechanical stuff. So yes, analysis plays a part, but only an intermediate one. And it's like the hemispheres, the right hemisphere takes a grasp of the whole, the left hemisphere takes it apart again, and the right hemisphere says, thank you, I now see an enriched whole. Yes, I was thinking it's a little like writing or acting a new character, which is that as you just play with ideas, something just feels right. Yeah. You write a line and you sort of think, yeah, I like that, that feels right. And then you go along a little bit more and you think, no, that doesn't feel right. And then you find something else. So you, you begin to fill it in, but it's by reference to some intuitive sense you have of what the whole is. And that's very, it's really, really intuitive. That's, that's wonderful to hear. And it's very, very like the account of poets, that they have a sort of vague feeling of the shape of a poem, or even perhaps a couple of phrases. And then things start to sort of cohere around it, rather like a, right. a crystal bits coming out of the liquid yeah, and right. consolidating, and a form appears. And that seems to be what you're describing. Yes, that is. And that's why sometimes novelists talk about a character taking the novel over, yes. which is a fascinating yes. thought. Yes. But suddenly you have such a sense of what this character is, yes. and you become focused on it, and the character starts writing the book for you. Yes, I mean, Thackeray says uh, about one of his characters, I sometimes think, how the Dickens did he write that? And Dickens said something very similar too. He <laughs> 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 yeah. did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, many, many novelists, and indeed poets, I mean, uh, Pushkin says at the beginning of, uh, oh, sorry, at the end of Yevgeny Onegin, of this very long novel poem. When I started out on this, I only had this sort of vague idea of where I was going, and I, had, yeah. couldn't, I didn't see Tatiana, and I didn't see all these figures, and then they came into being for me. But it was, it was almost, magical. It's almost as though it was there. Yes. You know? And I found this the only time I ever did uh, Shakespeare. I did Petruchio with uh, Jonathan Miller. 
I had that extraordinary experience. And I never much liked Shakespeare. I, I couldn't, <laughs> just didn't enjoy it much. You know, everyone else around me was shifting from cheek to cheek. And then in the interval, they'd say, isn't it wonderful? You know, and I always thought it was a bit thirdly. But what I discovered with working with Jonathan is that you would be playing a scene and all of a sudden something similar would happen. It would suddenly something would happen. Yeah. And you'd say, oh, that's what it's about. Yes, yes. You know, it's a, but it's all about trusting, really, the unconscious. And I wonder, does intuition mean unconscious? Well, I, intuition has to remain in the unconscious until the moment of insight, which is very strongly oh, associated with activity in the right superior temporal sulcus and the right amygdala. You'll be fascinated to learn. But, but no, that thing about the crystallization of something, you said it there all along. It seems to me that what happens is out of a field of potential something is being actualized yes. and you're being drawn to actualize it. And there's but, a sense that it's always been there. Well it has because in that field of potential it is there much as I think in physics one can say there is a field of potential and certain actualities uh. are, in particles are realized by certain acts or whatever it may be. Of consciousness. Uh, well, which, uh, well we so know, it seems. It doesn't yes. exist anyway. Well, uh, I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I think we have time for another half a question. Um, yes. Hello. Yeah, I've got a question. Oh, by the way, John, I've lived in Barcelona for the last 30 years, so thank you for making my life so difficult as I introduce myself to anybody. And your question is? And my question is... <laughs> Yeah, this is an incredible piece of work, Ian, and you've worked 10 years on this. And uh, I would say, yeah, we're in the presence of the intellectual and perhaps the economic elite here. Um, how do you propose to get your deep insights to the other six and a half billion people on the planet? It's very, very simple. They must buy the copies. <laughs> And read on. And don't feel you've got to read the whole damn thing at one go. I mean, it sounds terribly overfacing. Oh, my God. But what I hope is that it can be like you can dip into it. And I describe it as rather like a sort of, you know, journey that you can take in stages. Yeah. And I hope that people will say, well, I didn't skip that bit. I'm going to come back to that. Yeah. yeah. But thank you very much. You're very, yeah. very kind. There are plenty of... Uh, but it is a good give question. The, give the it? book away in the Global South. But, but their publishers gain... Uh, a profit on the book in the global it, north. It, 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 if it you may, really want to get the message out there, it may well, if you it really may, want to do that, that's a way it, to think about it. it, it, it absolutely right, and it may well come to that one day when the costs of the production of one of the most beautiful books of the last decade <laughs> are paid off. <laughs> Very good. One from the back there. Hello. I want to know... Is it possible to make the right side of your brain, which seems like the better side, or the left side of your brain, if you're that kind of person, is it possible to make them stronger so that we can become more complete? I, I think I understood you to be asking, is there some way of strengthening the right hemisphere in its somewhat um, um, one-sided position where the left hemisphere at the moment it seems to be dominating. If that is the question, is that, was that what you gathered? Hmm? Am I right? Yeah. Um, sorry? That was it. That was the question, yeah. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm terrifically, um, as they say, hard of hearing, but actually I'm deaf. Um, and, are you? 
deaf at all? No. No, I Sorry, what? <laughs> um, I have to sit on the left-hand side because this is the only one that works. Yes. I, I remember... <laughs> Sorry, I mustn't get distracted. But I, <laughs> I remember at college one person telling me that when they first arrived, they sat at dinner and um, uh, turned to the person on their left and talked to them. They obviously couldn't hear anything at all. So after one course had gone by, they turned to the person on their right and asked a question, and he said, my doctor has told me not to speak. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I mean, it's a very important question and a big one. I don't want to sound facetious if I say that I think the first thing is that you need to understand what it is that's missing. And this is really my, my mission is to strengthen in people the sense of something that I think they already have. Um, apart from people saying nice things like, this book changed my life, which I really didn't predict when I gave up practicing and hoping to change people's lives that way, I, did, I thought, well, this will be the end of hearing that you've made a big difference, but it, it hasn't, which is completely lovely. But the other thing that people often say is that you made me see or you helped me to understand something that I, at some deep level, knew to be the case. Yes. And that the kind of awful voices around me were telling me wasn't the case, but experience and all my thinking led me in that direction. So I think the first thing is to raise awareness. And really that's what I want to do with whatever time is left for me, is to raise awareness of a world which is rich, complex, beautiful, and responsive, and full of life. And that is, that is the one in which we actually live, not the left hemisphere's representation. But thank you. That's lovely. The sense, I mean, it's platonic, isn't it? The sense that it's already there. Plato occupies... Um, could occupy us for a while. But, 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 that, but he, 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 now we don't really talk about him because that civilization was based on slavery. That may or may not be the reason. But, but, but my reasoning is that Plato is a very complex character who in some ways represented the best of the right hemisphere and the worst of the left. Oh. And that you can look at the ideas, the platonic ideas, either as the forerunners of left hemisphere abstractions and generalities of disembodied reality, which are more real than the actual experienced ah, universe. Yes, yes, yes. Or you can look at him as um, somebody who saw this magical potential in everything and was the creator of some of the greatest myths, famously the myth of the cave, but the ring of Gyges and many, many others. So he was a complicated person who you simply can't sum up easily. And I've had my, my, my wrist slapped a few times for sort of saying Plato started the rot of the left hemisphere. And in some ways he sort of did, I'm afraid. But he, he was more complex than that, of course. Okay, another question, please. All right, yes, this gentleman here. Can we get a, a mic down here? How many men does it take to defend Paris? We don't know. It's never been tried. <laughs> <laughs> What's your problem with the French today? <laughs> well, you're always safe making jokes about the French. Nobody likes the oh, French. Oh, no, no. 
Not even the French. Oh, oui, oui, oui. No, je ne suis pas tout à fait. Non, non. Magnifique. Have a go. Um, hello, uh, yes. Orlando here. Um, a question about humour. Yes. Uh, for you both. Well, that's for my um, friend, I think. Well, uh, for, you, for you, I think for both of you. Um, Ian, you talk about the right brain as being able to tell the difference between jokes and lies. Um, yes. And, uh, John, you, you've, I mean, you know, uh, you talk too about the importance of humour in a creative sense. I uh, have been looking at humour in advertising over the last 20 years, and it's disappearing, and it's disappearing in, mm. in, in the world, I suspect, mm. as people become very fearful. Mm. Henri Bergson, the philosopher, talked about humour as uh, being able to poke fun at rigidity. Mm, yeah. You talk about the left brain as being very rigid, mm. uh, the right brain being about flow. And I wondered what you thought about that and uh, whether, the, whether this rigidity, whether perhaps the right brain was actually in charge of humour because it was taking... It was a, a way to sort of ensure that the left brain doesn't get too out of control, and that perhaps there's a way, uh, that, you know, when we get when we get in a very rigid, fixed society, as I suspect we are at the moment, humour disappears because of that. You know, it gets overwhelmed. Well, of course, um, I, I do know your your work, Orlando, and I I, I think it's 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 insightful. And I, I agree that you see um, in a world that I know very little about or knew nothing about until I read your work, it reflects exactly my hypothesis that this is the, the left hemisphere world in which we now live. I think you're right that one of the targets of humour has always been rigidity, you know, uh, pompously rigid religious people, pompously rigid political people. Uh, and uh, I'm afraid a lot of us find that some of the pompous rigidity of the acceptable social media now utterly laughable, but um, they've made up a rule, which is you mustn't laugh at them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we mustn't break rules. So, you know, that's, that, that would be flexible and, and actually seeing the big picture and the context. So, God forbid we should do that. Well, yeah, I remember reading Bergson. I was trying to impress my first wife. Um, and uh, what was it? A, a, a social sanction against, what is it? Me mechanistic behavior, I think it is. And I think that's right. I mean, what, what, what I notice is that uh, it's, it's about inappropriate behavior. In other words, when we did Life of Brown, we realized from the start you can't be funny about Jesus Christ because somebody who is appropriate the whole time um, is, is, is not funny. It's when people are inappropriate, their behavior is inappropriate. Um, and so that's, and then the social sanction is interesting because laughter is a collective thing. And, uh, you know, it is absolutely true. For example, if, I'm a, if I was talking to Republicans, they wouldn't laugh at the same jokes. Uh, as if I was talking to uh, d Democrats, and you to some extent change your, your tact depending on who you're talking to. So I, I've always thought he explains things very, very well. There's one joke he doesn't explain, which is when a, a duck walks into a bar and the man says, <laughs> man says, what do what you want? And the duck says, fish and chips, please. He said, what? He says, well, I want some fish and chips. He said, we don't do fish and chips here. He says, well, I'd still like some. He said, well, we don't, we don't. He said, please, give me some fish and chips. He says, get out of here, get out, go away, you're wasting my time. So he comes in the next day, he says, 
what do you want today? He says, I want fish and chips. He says, get out. He says, oh, come on, let me have some fish and chips. He says, look, if you come in here tomorrow and ask for fish and chips, I'm going to nail your beak to the counter. Guy comes in tomorrow, he says, what do you want now? He says, got any nails? No. I'll have some fish and chips. <laughs> My wife's favorite joke. It's <laughs> <laughs> glorious. It's terribly funny. It's, it's so nice. Stupid joke. <laughs> but I do think that this thing about inflexible behavior is right. And comedy is not about things going right, it's about things going wrong. And it's not about perfect people, it's about imperfect people. I don't know how those thoughts fit into. Left hemisphere, right hemisphere. Well, you, in the way that you probably imagine they do, in that the right hemisphere uh, sees that everything has its perfections and imperfections. That, it, that, as I say, every devil has its angel, and every angel has its devil. Not seeing that yes. is where yeah. we go very badly wrong. And it's what um, Jung called the dark side. Um, yeah. We refer to enantiodromia, that when you go in one direction, to go away as far as possible from something, you find you're encountering it rather than leaving it. So that most of the world's great liberation movements, the People's Republic of, led straight into tyranny. Yeah. Um, but I don't want to lower the tone, as I say. I wanted to mention one of the... You don't want to no, tell a joke about a duck, I, I, I can't do that, but I can... <laughs> I wanted to say on literalism, one of the loveliest ones for me is, I'm afraid, well known to everybody here from the life of Brian. Because Brian is saying the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, yeah. And somebody says, what, 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 what did you say? What did you say? I, I think he said, blessed are the cheesemakers. <laughs> somebody said, why the cheesemakers? And then this person says, oh, don't be so literal-minded. He means any producer of dairy products. <laughs> <laughs> So lovely. I mean, <laughs> he also says that, that laughter requires a momentary anesthesia of the soul. But that's interesting, you see, because what the woke people don't get is that laughter, because they only see the literal side of it, they don't understand that laughter could not only be ironic, but that it can actually be a form of affection. Because if you go back a few years, the English upper class found it very embarrassing to say to someone that I uh, really love you and you touch me very deeply because that would be regarded as really, oof, dear me, should uh, have another shot of whiskey or something, oh boy. But I mean, what they did was they insulted their friends because it was the way that the upper class had of telling their friends that they loved them because they would never insult anyone they didn't love, because that would be rude and a breach of good manners, you see. So those kind of strange reversals of values are absolute mystery to our work friends. Wow. <laughs> what are you writing? Couple more questions? Yes. yes. He's been very nice. Go on, he's even translated some of the questions for us. Can we get a microphone over here? Uh, this is a question really for, for both of you, but perhaps more for Ian and Mark. I've been thinking about psychiatry, and with the honourable exception of yourself, it would seem to me that modern Western psychiatry has become an entirely left brain, left hemisphere concept. There is a lot of talk about how neuroscience is about to give us the sort of explosion of awareness and knowledge, but actually 
it's all focusing in a more and more sort of categorized way. Uh, the DSM-5, for example, is, for me, a perfect example of the left brain's vision of we've, we've now explained something. Um, do you have any thoughts or views about that? Um, well, you'd expect me to repudiate your notion that it's all very left hemisphere. Um, but, of course, it has its elements as all... Um, disciplines do that um, are now perhaps overemphasized that are rather that way. But it's often said about certain traditions in psychotherapy that they were brainless and that certain traditions in neuroscience are mindless. And I, you would be expecting me as somebody who always tries to bring together these supposed opposites that are not opposites at all but aspects of one thing that I really think that what's interesting is the interface between the brain and the mind. I'm not interested in psychiatry that knows nothing about the brain, and I'm not interested in psychiatry that only looks at the brain. So I think, yes, your, your point about categorization is also interesting, because, of course, without categories, we can't... We, we have a chaos, really, of just individual cases. So there is a natural need to create categories. The problem is when, as always, it becomes over-dominant. So the tendency of our culture to think in black and white terms, to think in absolute terms, to want either-or answers, is at the bottom of the evils that beset us, that in everything we need both and. In fact, I, I sometimes say... We don't want either, either or, or both and. We want both either or and both and. And, and that's a very important point, I think, that really needs to be taken in. Thank you. Thank you. One last question. Very good. Um, people with, like, different brain structures, like dyslexia or autism spectrum, what side of hemisphere do they generally fall on, or do they... Yeah, which side? Um, people who are neurodiverse, I mean, dyslexia, autism spectrum, Asperger's, etc. Well, um, I say more about this in the new book. I said a little about it in the uh, Master in His Emissary. But in the matter with things, I have a whole chapter called What Can Schizophrenia and Autism Tell Us? in which I look at both the, the neuroanatomy, neurophysiology, and much more, the psychology and the phenomenology of schizophrenia and autism. And I suggest that, well, it would be too crude and simple to say that it's simply that they lack right hemisphere functioning or, or, or have impaired right hemisphere functioning at any rate. It, it, there certainly are very strong examples of that that are very rich for us to understand what a world looks like when somebody's right hemisphere is not functioning normally. I say there are autisms, not just one autism, because there are some that... People like Temple Grandin, who's a famous spokeswoman for autism, who thinks only in pictures, and there are plenty of people with autism who think only in words. So I think it's quite a complicated picture. Uh, in brief, I think that there's a problem in the connection between the hemispheres, and the corpus callosum has been fingered as a, the, the body of fibres for those who are not in with the lingo, that connect the two hemispheres. This connection seems to be very importantly implicated in both schizophrenia and in autism, but that would take us far out of um, tonight's conversation. Thank you. Dyslexia. And, and yes, I know you mentioned dyslexia, and I deliberately didn't answer on dyslexia because it's complicated. And there are some aspects that certainly suggest 
perhaps a right hemisphere advantage. And there are some uh, suggestions um, of the opposite. So it is a pretty complicated area. Well, I think that's about it. We can go and have some dinner. Oh. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a huge thank you to Ian McGilchrist and John Cleese. This episode of the podcast starred Ian McGilchrist and John Cleese. It was produced by Dana Outcolt and Luke Naylapero, and the series is exec produced by me and Dana. You can find more of Ian in our archive, as well as other experts on the mind and brain, like Anil Seth and Jenny Smith and Stephen Pinker. If you enjoyed the show, write us a review. If you didn't, please forget I mentioned it. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>